Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lights Out Library. My name is Sarah, and I'm so glad you're here. Join me as we explore another chapter in the story of our endlessly fascinating world. For tonight's story, we're going to travel far back into the past, to the frontiers of legend and history, to explore one of the most famous mythical tales ever told, the story of the Trojan War. Or was it a myth? We'll find out what archaeology has to say, but let's start right away with the words that you may have heard as a child and which never lose their ability to spark the imagination. Once upon a time, so long ago that memory of these events nearly faded entirely from human legend, the king of gods, Zeus, became annoyed at the sheer number of humans and half-gods populating the earth. Ever since he had overthrown his father, Cronus, and begun to rule the earth along with other Olympian gods, humans had multiplied. Among them walked too many heroes and demigods, born from relations between gods and humans. Zeus himself had done the same, been unfaithful to his wife Hera, and fathered many children with human women. Even more worrisome, Zeus learned of a prophecy foretelling that he would be overthrown by one of his own sons, like he had overthrown Cronus, and Cronus had overthrown his own father Uranus at the dawn of time. The threat was serious. And yet another prophecy stated that the son he bore with Thetis, a young and beautiful sea-nymph with whom Zeus had fallen in love, would become even more powerful than Zeus himself. In order to do away with all these problems, Zeus came up with a plan. First, he ordered Thetis to marry the elderly king, Peleus. He then made sure that all the gods were invited to the wedding. When all the gods arrived bearing gifts, Zeus ordered Hermes, the messenger of the gods, to stop Iris at the door. Iris, the goddess of discord, was a minor deity, but one who had the power to sow discord between gods and humans alike. Iris, upon being blocked from entering, threw her gift from the door, just as Zeus had expected. The gift was a golden apple, upon which was inscribed the words, To the fairest. Three goddesses at the gathering, Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite, immediately tried to claim this gift as their own, and argued fiercely over the apple just as Zeus had anticipated. The three goddesses could not come to an agreement, and none of the gods present dared to offer an opinion about who most deserved the title of fairest. Zeus just smiled, seeing that the first part of his plan was working. 
Zeus had manipulated the three goddesses into engaging in a bitter feud. Eventually, Zeus ordered Hermes to take the three goddesses to Paris, the prince of Troy, and ruled that Paris would decide to whom the golden apple should belong. Troy was the wealthiest, the most powerful of cities, protected by walls so high and so strong that no army could even dream of defeating it. Paris was a prince of Troy, but didn't know it. He had been raised as a shepherd and kept away from the city due to a prophecy stating that Paris would be the downfall of Troy. As an anonymous shepherd, however, there was no threat he could fulfill the prophecy and threaten the safety of Troy. Hermes led the goddesses to Paris, and the three bathed nude in plain sight of Paris in order to win his approval and gain the apple. Paris, however, was unable to decide between them, and the goddesses eventually resorted to bribes. Athena, as the goddess of military glory and knowledge, offered Paris bravery, wisdom, and the abilities of the greatest warriors. She assumed there was no way that Paris, who loved power and influence, could refuse her offer, which included control of Asia, and more power than any human king had ever possessed. Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, also understood the weapons in her arsenal, and offered Paris the love of the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen of Sparta. Helen was, of course, already married to Melanaeus, the king of Sparta, and her beauty was legendary. Paris couldn't resist such a tempting offer, and awarded the apple to Aphrodite, much to the ire of Athena and Hera. Paris couldn't have known so, but his choice accomplished Zeus's plan to bring war and chaos to the world. Paris's decision would have far-reaching consequences and fulfill the prophecy that said he would be the downfall of Troy. Many warriors and heroes would die as a result of the folly of men and gods alike. Before we continue with our story, though, Allow me to welcome you to tonight's episode. I hope you've already made yourself comfortable, and if not, give yourself a moment to get settled and to let all the tension drain from your body. Let today's concerns fade into the background as you listen to the sound of my voice. If, like me, it's been a long time since you last heard the story of the Iliad by Homer, of the Trojan War, or even if you're learning it for the first time, I hope you'll enjoy our exploration tonight. Is the Trojan War fact or fiction? Because, even though Homer's story is part of Greek mythology, Troy really did exist. Its ruins were discovered in the 19th century, after scholars believed for centuries that it was purely mythical. 
the ruins held a wealth of artifacts and information about Greek antiquity that led to additional discoveries and hypotheses about early Greek civilization. We'll discuss all of this tonight, but there will also be a lot of storytelling. This piece is a companion to my previously published episode about the adventures of Odysseus. Also, please do follow us on Facebook for show announcements. And now, let's return to our tale. So, Paris had granted Aphrodite the golden apple, and his prize would be the love of Helen, the queen of Sparta, and the most beautiful woman in the world. Her beauty was of divine origins. Her father was Zeus himself, and her mother, Leda, a princess who had also become a Spartan queen. Zeus had a talent for seducing mortal women through trickery. To seduce Leda, he had presented himself to her as a swan, and, unafraid of the bird, and enchanted by its elegance, the princess had let Zeus have his way with her. From this relationship was born Helen, raised by the king of Sparta as his daughter, despite her parentage by Zeus. Helen was a charming child, but as she became a woman and her beauty grew in fame all around Greece, she soon had scores of suitors willing to do anything for her hand in marriage. The king was unwilling to choose one, for fear the others would retaliate with violence. Among the suitors was Odysseus of the island of Ithaca, one of the various kingdoms of Greece. Odysseus may not have been the strongest or the bravest of all the suitors, but he was the most astute. And besides Helen, he had also set his sights on another Spartan woman, Penelope. So Odysseus came up with a plan. In exchange for the king's support of his pursuit of Penelope, Odysseus would solve the dilemma of Helen's marriage. First, all potential suitors would have to swear an oath to defend a marriage made by the gods, regardless of who was chosen. In this way, none of them would be able to deny the marriage and retaliate once Helen's husband was announced. Furthermore, all suitors swore to stay in the race for Helen's hand, and the king could now make his choice. As promised, the king supported Odysseus in his pursuit of Penelope, and the couple left for Ithaca. The king of Sparta chose Melanaeus to marry his daughter, a man with great wealth and power. Melanaeus had promised Aphrodite that he would sacrifice one hundred oxen if he won Helen's hand, and had sent his brother, Agamemnon, to petition the king on his behalf. His wealth and power made him a good political choice for the king. However, Melanaeus forgot about the promise he had made to Aphrodite, and the goddess became irritated when he failed to sacrifice one hundred oxen. Helen had two brothers and one sister, Castor, Pollux, and Clytemnestra. 
one of the brothers should rightfully have become the king of Sparta. But both became gods instead. So the throne went to Helen's husband, Melanaeus, after her father's death. Clytemnestra, Helen's sister, married Agamemnon, Melanaeus's brother, and he became the king of Mycenae, another Greek kingdom. The two brothers marrying the two sisters worked out well, and resolved issues of succession. Melanaeus was delighted with his new wife, and ignored Zeus's plan, the feud between the three goddesses and the judgment of Paris, which led to Helen being promised to Paris by Aphrodite. By promising Helen to another man, Aphrodite was able to punish Melanaeus for failing to fulfill his promise to sacrifice one hundred oxen in her honor. As all of these events unfolded in Sparta, Paris returned to Troy, no longer a humble sheepherder, but as an acknowledged prince. It was now time for him to claim his prize, the beautiful Helen. For some geographical background, Troy was not part of the Greek world. The Greeks, also known as the Achaeans, lived in and around the Peloponnese Peninsula, on islands on either side of it, in the Ionian and Aegean seas. Troy was a foreign city and kingdom in the east on the island of Anatolia, or present-day Hisarlik, Turkey. Under the guise of a diplomatic mission, Paris visited Sparta while King Melanaeus was away. Aphrodite was on standby, ready to intervene with Helen on Paris's behalf. Just before Paris entered the palace, Aphrodite instructed her son, Eros, the winged god of desire, to shoot an arrow at Helen, ensuring she would fall in love with the next person she met and be unable to resist her desires. As soon as she laid eyes on Paris, she instantly fell in love. Taking advantage of the king's absence, the two lovers sailed to Troy. Zeus and the other gods watched these events unfold from their perch on Mount Olympus. And the king of gods was satisfied to see what he had wrought. One of the most powerful Achaean kings, Melanaeus, had been humiliated by a foreigner taking his wife in his absence, and with her consent no less. Add to that the fact that all of Helen's suitors had been sworn by Odysseus to defend her marriage to Melanaeus, and the former suitors were all now bound to participate in an inevitable war between the Achaeans and the Trojans to return Helen to Melanaeus and restore his honor. In a desperate attempt to avoid a war, Melanaeus traveled to Troy with his closest ally, Odysseus. The two attempted to recover Helen, via diplomatic means, but failed, and war was about to commence. There are still many events and characters yet to intervene, but let's pause for a moment and take a look at the historical basis of all of this. The primary source of the story of the Trojan War is the Iliad, as I mentioned before, 
The Ancient Greek Poem by Homer Together with the Odyssey, also attributed to Homer, these two poems are central to ancient Greek literature. There is no doubt that these texts are ancient. They are dated to around the 8th century B.C., when their oldest known written form appeared. But we don't know for certain whether Homer existed, or whether he exists only in legend. Some scholars believe he was a genius poet and writer, the first ever in Western history to attach his name to a work of literature. Other scholars favor the theory that the Odyssey and the Iliad are the result of storytelling, writing, and editing by various contributors and collaborators. In that case, Homer would just be an invented figure, created to embody this tradition of poems written in epic or Homeric Greek, which was a literary style. In dialects, like in Chinese or Arabic, there is a literary form of the language used for writing that is very different from the way people spoke in everyday life. In Western countries in modern times, the distinction between written and spoken language has diminished considerably. We still don't write exactly as we speak in most cases, and when we do, the writing sounds very informal. But there is no longer a major distinction between written and spoken languages, like there was centuries ago, and like there was in the Iliad and Odyssey. Ancient Greeks believed that the Iliad exaggerated events for the sake of poetry and storytelling, but that the story itself had its roots in history. They didn't question the veracity of the Trojan War, and believed it had transpired several centuries before the time of classical Greece, around 1200 BC. But did they also believe that the gods had intervened in human affairs, and that heroes walked the earth? It's hard to know for sure, but classical writings seem to indicate that the population believed these events also to be true. Even though some were unsure of all the details, and which of them had been exaggerated, the educated elite was more split. Some believed there was at least partial truth in the tales, whereas others rejected mythology as superstitions, equivalent to fairy tales. Still, all across Greece, mythology was respected as something unifying and an important part of the culture. There was no strict delineation between mythology, theater, and literature. A lot of activity and traditions in ancient Greece were deeply rooted in religion and mythology, from the legitimacy of city-states to the economic activities of temples, to a theater or the Olympic Games. It wasn't in anyone's interest to attack these myths, and so they were passed from generation to generation, with new artists adding new anecdotes, so that the myths continually evolved. But the core of Greek mythology that was present in ancient Greece probably began to emerge a thousand years before, around the 18th century B.C.,
It was passed on orally for centuries, until it began to be written down, as far as we know, around the 8th century B.C., the time of the Iliad and Odyssey. The importance of this body of stories cannot be underestimated, and maybe you've noticed that these stories often sound familiar, even when you don't personally know of them. That's because these myths form a basis for a large part of Western storytelling traditions. These stories have been rewritten and retold countless times, with different characters and settings added. For example, think back to the story I told in the beginning of the goddess Iris being banned from a wedding and taking her revenge with a curse. Sound familiar? This is the same storyline as Sleeping Beauty. All the devices in the Iliad and the Odyssey, the affairs, the attempts at revenge, the rivalries between gods and goddesses, the initiations, the journeys, the misunderstandings leading to dramatic consequences, the cautionary tales. These devices still form the foundation of the books, movies, and TV shows, not to mention the podcasts and YouTube channels we enjoy today. Of course, a lot of these elements are universal and found in many cultures around the world. But when it comes to the Western storytelling tradition, the forms they took in ancient Greece in stories such as the Iliad or the Odyssey were very influential. So let's return to our story. Troy had refused to return Helen to Melanaeus, and war was now unavoidable. All the Greeks in the Achaean kingdom were, as I said, oath-bound to defend the marriage of Helen to the king of Sparta. Melanaeus asked his brother Agamemnon to uphold his oath. Agamemnon agreed and sent an emissary to all the Achaean kingdoms, asking them to also honor their oath. No Greek warrior could ignore the call. Among them was Ajax, a great-grandson of Zeus, and famous warrior, due to his colossal stature, known to be fearless in combat. Another hero the Greeks counted on was Achilles, whom you may remember from the beginning of our story as the son of Zeus and Thetis, the sea nymph. Thetis married Peleus, and it was at their wedding that Zeus plotted to create conflict by barring the entrance of Isis and setting off the whole golden apple contest between the three goddesses. Achilles had been the subject of prophecies even before the war began one of which said that he would have to choose between dying of old age after an uneventful but full and happy life, or dying young on the battlefield, after which he would gain immortality through poetry. Even when he was just a child, another prophecy declared that Troy would never fall without Achilles. This last prophecy was told by Calchas, an augur from the city of Argos. Calchas was a seer. He could receive knowledge of the past, present, and future from the god Apollo, 
and he also joined the Achaean army in the fight against Troy. Thetis was naturally very fond of her son Achilles, and attempted to make him immortal, bathing him in the river Styx while he was still an infant, so that any part of his body touched by the water of the river to the afterworld would be rendered invulnerable. But as she bathed him, she held him by his heel, hence the term Achilles' heel, to refer to a person's weakest vulnerability. As Achilles grew into adulthood, he became the greatest of all mortals, strong, fast, agile, but also brave and perfectly confident in his abilities. He had been sent, along with Ajax, to the centaur Chiron, to be raised and trained, and no other warrior in Greece would have been foolish enough to challenge him. Still, his mother knew the prophecies, especially the one that declared he would die young in battle, and news of the upcoming war with Troy terrified Thetis. She chose instead to hide him on the island of Skyros, in the Aegean Sea, in the court of King Lycomedes, disguising her son as a female and hoping he would not be found. But he was discovered eventually, through his own actions. Any time there were foreign invaders on the island, a horn was blown in warning, and Achilles, hearing the horn, took up a spear and prepared for combat. He had blown his own cover, much to the despair of his mother, and decided to join the Achaean army. As the Greek forces gathered, Calchas was among them. A sacrifice was made to Apollo to attract his favor and so that the future might be revealed. After the sacrifice was made, a snake slithered away from Apollo's altar to a nearby tree and, finding a sparrow's nest, ate the mother sparrow and her nine chicks, before turning to stone. Seeing this, Calchas read it as a sign that Troy would fall, but only in the tenth year of the war. The route to Troy was by sea, beyond the Aegean Sea, and to carry their army an immense fleet had been assembled, more than one thousand ships. But as the fleet set sail for Anatolia, a storm scattered their ships, ending the invasion before it could even begin. It took eight long years, but the fleet was eventually reassembled, and the determination of many warriors like Agamemnon and their allies like Odysseus paid off. The fleet was once again ready, and now comprised twelve hundred galleys, each with dozens of warriors from all over Greece, the mainland, the Peloponnese, the Aegean Islands, Crete, Ithaca, a hundred thousand men ready to attack the most formidable city in the known world. But again, as the fleet prepared to depart, the winds suddenly ceased, in a way that was unnatural, even suspicious. Could it be that some of the gods were working against the Greeks? Calchas was called upon to explain what was happening, 
and here revealed that Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and wild animals, daughter of Zeus and sister of Apollo, was doing this to punish Agamemnon for having slain a sacred deer, and then boasted that he was a better hunter than even Artemis. Artemis decided to make Agamemnon pay for his arrogance. Calchas also revealed that the only way to appease the goddess was for Agamemnon to sacrifice his own daughter, Iphigenia. Agamemnon initially refused, but then finally relented, realizing this was the only means by which he could lead the expedition and honor his oath. Lucky for him, Artemis was a benevolent goddess, because, as he prepared to sacrifice his daughter, Artemis instead took her to be a maiden in one of her temples and replaced her with a lamb. Iphigenia was saved, the winds returned, and finally the Achaeans could set sail for Troy. The Iliad is famous for its telling of the Trojan War, but I should point out that the poem actually only covers a few weeks of the war. Toward its end, while also alluding to several events that happened prior. The Odyssey also introduces more elements of the story, and the rest is a long tradition, shaped by many others over the centuries. It's not uncommon to find different versions of the same episode. I'll be telling one version in this story, but there are others. I'll be including events that transpired over the first nine years of the war, before the Iliad begins. So, the Greeks had gathered together warriors from their many kingdoms, but Troy also had allies, from Anatolia, from Thrace. Many people had answered the call to arms to defend Troy from invaders. This Trojan alliance was no less formidable than the Greeks. This was more than just a fight between the Greeks and Troy, it was a battle between the Greek world and barbarians against eastern peoples gathered under the Trojan banner. As the worlds prepared to clash, Zeus looked on from Mount Olympus, pleased that his plan would successfully purge the world of its excess of humans, demigods, and warriors. This fight also represented the divine conflict between on the Greek side, Hera and Athena, the two goddesses who had lost the golden apple to Aphrodite, on the Trojan side. Also on the Trojan side were Poseidon, god of the seas, and Apollo, who, as we'll see later, used their power to hinder the Greeks. The Trojans also had their heroes, the most notable of whom was Hector, the son of King Priam, and brother of Paris. Priam was the older king of Troy, and had fathered many children, including princes Hector, Paris, Typhonus, and Helenus. Hector was a talented warrior, and commanded a Trojan army on par with Greek heroes like Ajax or Achilles. Calchas had prophesied that, when the Achaeans arrived in Troy, the first to set foot on Trojan land would also be the first to die, 
so no one dared step off their ships once they made landfall. Odysseus once again used trickery to achieve his goals, throwing his shield down on the beach, then jumping onto it. Another soldier, Protocilius, seeing this, and assuming Odysseus had been the first to set foot on Trojan soil, also jumped down from his ship. But Odysseus had saved himself by landing on his shield, and Protocilius soon fell victim to the prophecy, dying after engaging in combat with Hector, the Trojan leader. Despite Protocilius's death, things went well for the Greeks on this first day of combat. They slayed many Trojans and were able to occupy the beach, whereas the Trojans fled to the safety of their city walls, the most formidable in the world, so high and impenetrable that their construction was attributed to Poseidon and Apollo. Following the Trojans' retreat behind their city's walls, the Greeks besieged Troy for nine long years. The walls were so high and so thick that an assault was unthinkable. The city itself was so large that the Greeks could not even surround it, and so the Trojans were still able to replenish their supplies. Still, the Greeks sent their armies, led by warriors such as Ajax or Achilles, to raid the surrounding land of Trojan allies. Achilles raided several cities, and among the loot brought back an enslaved woman of remarkable beauty, Briseis. Agamemnon also captured a beautiful and seductive enslaved woman, but still the Trojans would not be tempted out from behind their city walls. The Trojans knew that time was on their side, and that the Achaeans could not remain in Troy and away from their homes and kingdoms forever. This strategy began to pay off. By the end of the ninth year, Greek soldiers began to mutiny. Thousands of warriors refused to obey their leader's commands, demanding to return home. It took Achilles' powers of persuasion to convince them to stay for now, but the worst was still ahead for the Achaeans. And this is where the tale of the Iliad begins, in the tenth year of the siege. The father of the enslaved woman, captured by Agamemnon, was a priest of Apollo, and came to Agamemnon to ask for the return of his daughter. Agamemnon refused, and even insulted the priest, which enraged Apollo. The god Apollo then afflicted the Achaean army with a plague, forcing its leaders to return the girl to her father. As compensation for his loss, Agamemnon took Achilles' captured enslaved woman, Briseis, for himself. Achilles, insulted and enraged by Agamemnon's actions, decided he would no longer fight and withdrew from the war for now. The Trojans, seeing their enemies' morale weakened, decided it was time to bring the siege to an end. For the first time since the Greeks' initial landing, the two armies faced each other. A duel was agreed upon between Menelaus of Sparta and Paris of Troy. 
the two men literally at war for Helen's affections. But Paris was no match for Menelaus, and was badly beaten. Aphrodite saved his life, refusing to let the man who had awarded her the golden apple die on the battlefield. The two armies once again began to fight below the city's walls. Warriors and heroes on both sides gave everything they had to destroy their enemies, inspired by the gods who supported them. Thousands fell that day, but still the battle ended without a decisive winner. In the days that followed, the Trojans exploited their psychological advantage and the absence of Achilles to drive the Greeks back to their camp. Achilles observed what was happening from afar. According to Greek tradition, warriors were paired with a companion. They were best friends, and sometimes even lovers. Achilles' companion, who was also his relative, was Patroclus, and when Achilles withdrew from the war, so did Patroclus. But Patroclus wanted to fight, and seeing the progress made by the Trojans, Achilles sent Patroclus back into battle, wearing Achilles' armor and leading Achilles' army. The next day, Patroclus bathed in glory as he led the Greeks in driving back the Trojans to the walls of their city and salvaging a desperate situation. The Greeks, thinking this man to be Achilles, were inspired, and as the Trojans re-entered their city in chaos, Patroclus, in Achilles' armor, thought to storm the city before the Trojans were able to close the door behind them. But, as so often happened, the fates intervened, preventing the Achaean army from entering Troy. Hector once again appeared to fight Patroclus, thinking he was Achilles, and not having the strength of his companion, Patroclus was defeated killed by Hector. After the death of their leader, the Greeks allowed the Trojans to return to their city, once again at a dead end. But Achilles was mad with grief at the death of his friend. He swore revenge on Hector, which meant he had to re-enter the war. And so he reconciled with Agamemnon and received Briseis back from the Greek king. Having lost his armor and weapons to Patroclus in his battle with Hector, Achilles received new ones, forged by Ephesus, the god of metalworking and artisans himself. The next day, Achilles killed many on the battlefield, even nearly killing the Trojan hero Aeneas, who was saved at the last minute by Poseidon. The Trojan army once again fled to their walled city, but the goddess Satina, protector of Achilles, was watching. She caused Hector to become disoriented and to stay outside the walls of the city, where he now had to face Achilles. Now the two most formidable heroes of the war engaged in an epic fight, Achilles burning with hate toward the killer of Patroclus, and each with their protector, Achilles with Athena, and Hector with Apollo and Aphrodite. 
Still, none could vanquish the mighty warrior Achilles, and that day Hector was defeated. Still blinded by his hatred, Achilles dragged Hector's body behind his chariot and refused to return it to the Trojans for burial. King Priam of Troy was devastated by the loss of his favorite son, and, led by Hermes to Achilles' tent, begged for the return of Hector's body. Touched by the grief of Hector's father, Achilles agreed and gave back the body so a funeral could be arranged. But still the war raged on. Troy continued to resist, even after the loss of their leader. In yet another battle, Achilles even managed once to enter the city with a small group of Achaeans. Seeing this, the gods gathered to argue over Achilles. He had killed so many children, including many of their own children. Mortals, even heroes, are of little importance to the gods. And, seeing this, the gods agreed that Achilles' time had come. Inspired by Apollo, Paris hit Achilles with a poison arrow in the only part of his body that could be injured, the spot his mother had not dipped in the river Styx, his heel. The hero Achilles vacillated between life and death as poison ran through his veins, and he collapsed, dead, finally fulfilling the prophecy, declaring that he would die young and become immortal through poetry. And here we are, three thousand years later, still sharing his story. With Achilles dead, the Greeks had lost their best hero and had still not won the war. In the end, after years of violence, hate, and revenge, it was not fighting but a ruse that finally brought the war to an end, one imagined by Odysseus. He devised that they would build a giant horse from wood, in which he and a few others would conceal themselves. The Trojans awoke to find the beach deserted, the fleet gone, and a gift, a wooden horse, left on the beach. Believing the war to finally be over, the Trojans dragged the horse into their city. Several warned against it, advising that the horse should instead be burned. But Athena made sure they were ignored. With their trophy secured, the Trojans celebrated their victory. The war was finally over, and they had prevailed. But later, in the dark of night, the Achaean fleet returned, and Odysseus and his men stepped out of their hiding place inside the horse and opened the gates of Troy from the inside. The Greek army entered the city that night full of rage. They killed the sleeping population, continuing into the next day, when they killed Hector's child by throwing the infant from the walls of Troy to bring an end to the royal line. More innocents than ever before were killed, and the most powerful city in the world fell to its enemies. The story of Troy had come to an end, but history hadn't. 
a few survivors, led by the Trojan hero Aeneas, went on a journey that ended in Italy, where they settled. Their story is told in another epic poem, the Aeneid, by the Roman author Virgil, who made the story of the Trojan horse legendary, as the horse doesn't actually appear in the Iliad, which ends before the fall of Troy. Greek kings returned to their lands on difficult journeys, especially Odysseus, whose journey home is told in Homer's Odyssey. Through the Iliad and other texts written in the years that followed, the Trojans retained their fame during antiquity, the Middle Ages, and still today. In antiquity, the story was considered to be historical, but in the West it was considered to be a part of Greek mythology. In the 19th century, scholars increasingly categorized the story as myth, or as a story composed of multiple different stories. Until the 1860s, when the ruins of a large Roman city, itself built on the ruins of a Greek settlement, was discovered. These ruins of a large Bronze Age city corresponded to the location and time period indicated in the Iliad, and on the site an abundance of artifacts made of copper, silver, and gold were unearthed. They have been called Priam's treasure, after the name of the legendary king of Troy, but most of the artifacts were actually located on a part of the site that doesn't correspond to the Bronze Age city. So it's far from certain whether or not these artifacts are related to ancient Troy. Still, they are well-preserved, ancient, and a remarkable archaeological treasure. So it appears Troy did exist in the Bronze Age. We still have no way of knowing whether the Trojan War is a myth, actually happened, or was exaggerated, or was a combination of several wars. But what we do know is that a city existed there, and long before the dates of the supposed Trojan War. The ancient Greeks estimated the war to have taken place around 1200 BC, but the earliest remains from the site are from 3000 BC, and archaeological studies indicate that the city was destroyed around the 12th century BC, at a time that corresponds to the Trojan War story. More broadly, the dates correspond to a widespread phenomenon in the Near East called the Bronze Age Collapse, around the same time, between 1200 and 1150 BC. Ancient Greek kingdoms, Babylonia, the Hittite Empire in Anatolia, the Egyptian Empire, they all collapsed politically and culturally at this time. Trade routes were interrupted, cities were abandoned, and the Dark Ages commenced, lingering for centuries in various parts of the eastern Mediterranean. We don't know the exact reason why. It could have been a temporary change in the climate, maybe caused by a volcanic eruption. It could have been an invasion or the effects of iron-based metallurgy that began to spread and maybe led to wars. Or maybe it was just bad luck, a series of coincidences 
but it definitely happened, and maybe the story of the Trojan War represented this collapse, which shook the early Greek world, and from which the Greeks needed several centuries to recover. As always, mythology is never entirely made up, and has its roots in reality as a way to explain history, society, and the human experience. We humans so often tell stories to make sense of that which is senseless. That's all I have for you tonight. This story has been a rich one, with a complex cast of characters, both human and divine. Their triumphs and tragedies really put my quiet little life into perspective, for which I am grateful. As you fall asleep tonight, I hope your dreams are nothing like the Iliad, full of war and revenge, but instead as peaceful as the night sky over ancient Troy, full of wonder and mystery and oblivious to the drama unfolding below. Sleep well, dear friends.